And the scripture trumps everything. I don't care what the archaeologists say. I don't care what the historians say. And, and throughout world history, especially in the modern era, uh, the Bible has been proven right time and time and time again. I can't tell you how many times historians and archaeologists blew off the Bible, but lo and behold, now they've discovered that actually the Bible was right all along. I mean, this has happened countless times throughout the history of historians and archaeologists. And so as Christians, I want you to, to know that the Bible is reliable and what God's inspired word says is reliable. And we should never try to make the Bible fit secular man's timeline of history. The Bible is the timeline of history. And secular man, whether he likes it or not, has to conform to the scripture, not, not the other way around. And it seems like that we have a lot of Christians that are trying to jam the biblical timeline into secular man's history and secular man's timeline, and that is not the way it should be done. And I have never really studied the chronology of the Bible in depth. And as I've been going through and preparing for these timeline lessons, I am amazed at um, just a lot of the things that I've read and studied and the work of men who have, my gosh, spent countless years studying in depth uh, the, the biblical chronology. It's, it's really amazing. And it has bolstered my already great confidence in the scripture. Just the little bit that I've done in studying biblical chronology and the work of some of these guys, it's like, wow, it's really quite amazing. I mean, we've had, um, I mean, we've literally had things that were written in stone in terms of history. And then archaeological discoveries come about that from their own people that they can't deny. And guess what it conforms to? It conforms to what the Bible has always said. It's conformed to what the theologians have always said. Uh, but it was poo-pooed because that's just the Bible. And the Bible's not reliable. Well, you as a Christian, I want you to know the Bible is reliable. And so I wanted to spend at least another, I think we're going to finish here. And I tried to put together some, some information in summary form that I think will help you at least understand the debate or the differences. Um, so let's just uh, start here, Lesson 8, 430 years from the promise to the Exodus. We're going to look at this again real quick and just go over some um, summary points. It might not look like summary points, but I've tried to... Um, I've tried to include the least amount of information I could, yet still give you a uh, what I think is a, is a credible um, commentary on these, these issues. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the beautiful weather um, that you've given to us. Father, we pray that you would honor our time here tonight. 
and that you would be blessed by it and that you would equip us, Father, as your children. Um, Lord, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I pray that you would grow our faith, Father, and strengthen our faith in your word, in your chronology, in your, your own, your very own timeline of history. Father, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so <clears throat> we're using Usher's timeline of history. And if you, if you, if you study Usher, and uh, you know, he was an Irish theologian, some say the greatest uh, Irish theologian. Uh, he was there at Trinity University in Dublin. And um, his, his work has been proven reliable um, and it's one of the standards for biblical chronologies. Um, and so I'm basically, he's, he's our foundation in terms of the dates we're using. Uh, it's not that there can't be wiggle room. I mean, after all, we're, we're talking about, you know, large spans of time and, and ancient time. Uh, but Usher used the biblical record as his foundation. And other men who have also worked on the chronology, um, basically what they've done, to their credit, is they've taken the biblical chronology and they've not tried to make it fit with secular numbers or secular history. You know, we watch things on TV, the History Channel or Discovery and BBC, and, and, and I'm, I do it. I love watching those, those shows. And these experts will get up there and tell you this is the way it is. Uh, and we have the temptation to believe them because they're the expert. Uh, don't do that. Just because they're on TV, just because they got lots of letters behind their names and they sound like an expert, if they're not conforming to the Bible, then, then don't, don't, don't just take what they say wholesale. And we have a reason to take that position because throughout history it's been proven that the Bible is reliable. I can't tell you how many centuries the book of Daniel was just laughed, laughed off because there was no evidence that what Daniel... And besides that, who could possibly predict those world empires centuries before they ever came to be? That's impossible. Uh, Daniel, of course, had to be written centuries after the fact. Well, guess what? They've discovered. They've discovered archaeologically, historically, that Daniel, actually, there is now evidence that proves that Daniel was written. Besides that, Jesus quotes Daniel. Uh, and if you don't accept the book of Daniel, then you got to not accept Jesus. And it's the same way when we talk about the biblical chronology, or you talk about the Exodus, or you talk about Moses. Jesus is quoting Moses. And so uh, for all those people that say Moses never existed, there's no evidence that the Israelites were ever in Egypt. That's what the secular historians will tell you. That's what the secular archaeologists will tell you. There's no evidence of Hebrew slaves ever being in Egypt. Except there is a lot of evidence. And the problem is it doesn't fit the chronology of secular man. So... I want to just talk about this a little bit tonight and hopefully give you some things that will help you uh, have a better basic understanding of, of what we're talking about. So the Bible is clear. It's 430 years from the promise made to Abraham 
to the exodus out of Egypt. Uh, we've looked at the scriptures last week in your handout I gave you last week. There was a scripture in Galatians where Paul said from the time that the promise was made to Abraham, it was 430 years. Here in Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 through 41, let me read this. It says, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years on the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So 430 years is not what's in question. What's in question is, where did those children of Israel spend those 430 years? Did they spend them all in Egypt? Or did they spend them as sojourners in a land that was not their own, which would have included Egypt, but was not exclusive to Egypt? So I, I gave you two, um, two commentaries, two excerpts from commentaries uh, that were very, I thought they were very helpful on this uh, verse from Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. The first, uh, let's just read together from John Gill's commentary on this verse. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt. The Septuagint, so the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it was translated and published, you know, 200, 250 years before the birth of Christ. And we talked about this before. So you had Hebrews because of the, the Assyrian and the Babylonian dispersions. Uh, you had Hebrews, you had Jews living all over the world. The world was Hellenized. Most people in the world spoke Greek, uh, and you had Hebrews who had lived for generations outside the land of Israel, and you had these Jews who no longer spoke Hebrew, no longer read Hebrew. How could they read their Bibles? Well, they couldn't. And so uh, the rabbis got together, and, and the, 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 the powers that be in Israel got together, and they commissioned uh, 70 scholars to write to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. It's why it's called the Septuagint. There were 70 scholars. It's why King James chose 70 scholars to translate the Bible into English, what we commonly call the King James Bible. Um, but so the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, in this verse, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, adds, and in the land of Canaan. So in the Septuagint, it would say, now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt and in the land of Canaan. The Samaritan version says, the sojourning of the children of Israel and their fathers in the land of Canaan and in the land of Egypt. Agreeably to which are both the Talmuds, in one of the Talmuds, the words are in Egypt in all, and in all lands. So the Talmuds are like the, the records. So you have like the Babylonian Talmud, and I can't remember what the other Talmud is. Anybody know? Um, the Babylonian Talmud, and I can't remember what the other one is. There's, there's two, two of these, and in both of them, the point is, in both of the Talmuds, uh, it it adds, it, it talks about how 
they sojourn not just in Egypt, but in all the lands and in, in all the lands and in the other. In the other Talmud, it says in Egypt and in the rest of the lands. Uh, and then Eben Ezra interprets the words. He's a famous uh, rabbi, commentator, Jewish commentator. And certain it is, this is what Eben Ezra says, and certain it is that Israel did not dwell in Egypt 430 years and even not much more than 200 years. But then they and their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, dwelt so long in Mesopotamia, in Canaan, and in Egypt, in foreign countries, in a land not theirs, as the phrase is, in Genesis 15, 13, where the place of their sojourning and the time of it are given by way of prophecy. So even the Jews recognized, and, and I think this is why Paul writes what he does in Galatians, because Paul would have certainly read and studied the, the, the Talmud and the writings of the rabbis, and so it was commonly accepted by the Jews that the 430 years were not exclusively in Egypt, but included the sojourning in all of the lands, which is what the biblical record seems to, to, uh, to tell us, especially the scripture out of Galatians. Um, I'm going to skip some of this. Basically, then it goes on, talks about, you know, did, could the county, did the counting start with the promise to Jacob, or did the counting start with the promise uh, God gave to Abraham when he called him out of the land of the Chaldees, or out of Ur? And according to the Jews, and I think if we look at it, uh, the timeline fits with this being the promise given to Abram when he calls him out of uh, Ur of the Chaldees. Because the 30 years is from the promise given when he's called out to Isaac. So it goes on. Um, then there were just 30 years from his coming out of Ur of the Chaldees to Isaac's birth at the bottom of page 15 there. Since he was born when he was 100 years old. And from the birth of Isaac to the birth of Jacob was 60, excuse me, 60 years, Genesis 25, 26, and from thence to his going down to Egypt was 130 years, Genesis 47, 9, and from thence to the coming of Israel out of Egypt were 210 years, as is generally computed, which makes the exact sum of 430 years. So this is Gill's commentary, and then he refers you to Acts 7, 6 and Galatians 3, 17, which I think I've already given you those scripture. Um, Jameson Fawcett Brown gives you a much shorter uh, section on that same verse. And uh, that commentary says, The Septuagint renders it thus, the sojourning of the children and of their fathers, which they sojourned in the land of Canaan and in the land of Egypt. These additions are important for the period of sojourn in Egypt did not exceed 215 years. But if we reckon from the time that Abraham entered Canaan, and the promise was made in which the sojourn of his posterity in Egypt was announced, this makes up the time to 430 years. Uh, so if 
someone ever comes to you and says, you know, the Egyptians didn't even... Number one, they weren't even in Egypt. There's no evidence of that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And number two, they weren't there for 430 years. And you, say, you can say, yes, I know that. Uh, they were only there 215 years. Uh, but if you, if you rightly divide the word of truth, the Bible is not specifically saying necessarily, I think it is not, that those 430 years were exclusively in Egypt, but the counting began from the time Abraham was called out and into the land of promise, which accounts for the 430 years. Because you've got 400 and you've got 430, and that 30 years has to do with the birth of Isaac. All right. Any questions there? Those are pretty self-explanatory commentaries. I just wanted you to have those for your records any questions there? Any comments there? Okay. So then there is, um, and I, I got this terminology. I, I printed you basically, um, this is a very easy to understand. I printed this for you. Uh, it's the timeline um, out of one of my... Um, reference books, uh, and it was the easiest one to, for you to read. I've got another one, but it's kind of busy, and uh, to reduce it down, it would be almost impossible for you to read, uh, but this one actually gives us the detail that we want to kind of look at and talk about. So if you look at this timeline that I made a copy uh, of, if you notice, uh, as you're looking at it, on the left side, uh, where it says timeline, and then you have biblical history, and then below that, you have world history. So the biblical history, the timeline's in yellow. The world history's kind of in, um, I don't know what color that is, tan or light bronze. Um, and you'll notice the biblical history there has two timelines, and one says earlier dating system, and the one at the bottom says later dating system. So you have an early and a late dating system, and this primarily has to do with the Exodus. So there's two dating systems used by most scholars, an earlier and a later dating system. The earlier dating system, that's the top line up there, it assigns the time of the Exodus around 1290 B.C. This is, this, is the, this is the timeline, this is the chronology that's typically accepted by secular historians and archaeologists. So if you were to ask a secular historian or archaeologist, um, if you ask them when were the children of Israel slaves in Egypt, they'd probably say, well, there's no evidence that there were slaves in Egypt. But Ramses II, which was the pharaoh that, that they are purported to have served under, would have been pharaoh in this time, and they would point you to this time. The later dating system, which is consistent with Usher, puts the Exodus at around 490 B.C., there's a 200-year difference. So 
in this later dating system, the exodus is pushed back in time 200 years to a date of 1490 B.C. And Ramses is not the pharaoh at that time. At that time, the pharaoh is Thutmose. Uh, some may say uh, it could even be Amenhotep, but it's, it was um, really Thutmose was the pharaoh at that time. And the point there is, is that it's been generally believed and taught by many of us, and, and especially if you've ever seen the great movie, The Ten Commandments, who's the pharaoh? Well, it's Ramses. But if you use the later dating system, which would put us around 1490, Ramses is not the pharaoh. Now, who cares? Well, it's actually quite important because a funny thing, if you push the timeline back 200 years, you have so much evidence of Israelite slaves in Egypt there's evidence of Joseph in the tombs of his brothers in Egypt still today. There's evidence of the conquest of the land of Canaan. So they'll also tell you there's no evidence that there ever was a Jericho, a battle of Jericho, and no conquest of Canaan. It just doesn't exist. Because they're digging and looking 200 years out of date. But if you go back 200 years... There is all kinds of evidence of the Israelites going into Canaan, the Israelites being in Egypt, the whole slave city that existed in Egypt where the Israelites lived in, in, uh, in Goshen is there today. They've discovered it. They just aren't calling it an Israelite slave city. But all of the evidence points to that's exactly what it is. In that one place, and we, we need to do this. We need to plan. If you guys want to watch a movie, it's a great movie. We'd have to figure out a place to do it. But I really would like for you all to watch Patterns of Evidence. Uh, because it actually, it, 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 it is amazing. And in these graves in, in this city and in Goshen, where the Israelites, according to the Bible, lived, that, that's there right now. You've got this, this one tomb of this one guy. It's a pyramid-shaped tomb. And there is a, uh, a, there's a full, full, full statue of him wearing none other than a coat of many colors. And they can't figure out why this... Who is this guy that's got a pyramid tomb? Because that was only reserved for royalty. No commoner would be given a pyramid tomb. And it's the only guy that's got a pyramid tomb other than pharaohs and royalty in Egypt. And he's not in an Egyptian city. He's in a city of these other people who they don't really know who they are. But they certainly weren't slaves and they weren't Israelites. And the funny thing is, all of the things buried in these tombs, 12 tombs. wonder why there's 12 tombs there. And this one big central tomb with a pyramid and a guy sitting there with a coat of many colors enthroned there with all of the accoutrements of, of rulership and authority in Egypt. And when they look in these tombs, 
They say these are not Egyptians. These are Semitic, which Semites, which would be Jews. Now, it doesn't have to be Jews. They could be other people. But the point is, these are not tombs of Egyptians. These are the tombs of Semite people. But they can't be the tombs of Israelites because the Israelites were never in Egypt. But there's some Semite people, and we know that because the daggers and the animals and the pottery and everything that's buried in these tombs with them are not Egyptian. It's all Semite. But it couldn't be Israelites because it's 200 years too early, 200 years later in history. And if that was the case, they'd have to rewrite all their history books. They'd have to rewrite all their history, and they're not willing to do that. And that's not even the least of it. Do you realize that if they actually, if they actually followed the science like they tell us to do, follow the science, follow the history, follow the archaeology, they would have to admit that the Bible, the claims of the Bible that they have spent centuries and decades saying is not true, now all of a sudden, do you know how many claims in the Bible would all of a sudden be true that they have said is not true? And it's not really rewriting the history books that they're worried about. It's the claims of the Bible that they're really worried about. Now, what's interesting about this documentary called Patterns of Evidence, they actually have secular historians they have both sides on there. It's a very objective interview, but they have secular historians who say, there it is. It's in the ground. There it is. What do you do with that? You, you got to do something with it. You can't just say this doesn't exist because we just dug it up and we've studied it. And, and based on everything that we've all said that we know, you can't just deny this. But a lot of people are denying it or saying it's unknown. And so I wanted you to have a copy of that dating system or that little thing because it shows you this, this thing of the earlier and the later dating system. And what we're following here in this study is what would be called the later dating system. Usher dates the Exodus at around 14, uh, he gives it a date of 1491 BC, which is 200 years earlier than um, what, what modern-day secular archaeologists and historians would, would um, and some Bible scholars would date. Some, we have Bible scholars who adhere to that earlier dating system as well. Um, so the hard evidence is there. It just doesn't fall in the right place in the, in the chronology. So I, I gave you an excerpt from um, an article. And uh, this article was a book review. So Patterns of Evidence is not only a documentary film, it's also a book. And uh, Answers in Genesis did a book review, an article which was a book review on this book, Patterns of Evidence. And uh, it's a good article. I put the link down there at the bottom of that page. And uh, I just gave you an excerpt here 
from a section of that article called The Biblical Yardstick. And I just want to read this, and you can follow along with the handout I gave you. It says, The Biblical Yardstick. Because we understand that the Bible is God's word, and Jesus himself said that God's word is true, John 17, 17, we know that the Bible is the yardstick by which archaeological evidence is to be measured, not the other way around. And there are many instances in which skeptics have thought the historical details of Scripture were fabricated, but for which later corroborating archaeological finds have been unearthed. And Mahoney notes repeatedly in his book, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. In other words, if we don't find any evidence of Jews being enslaved in Egypt, we shouldn't take that to mean that they were never enslaved in Egypt. We take that to mean we don't have any evidence. There's no evidence that Noah's ark ever existed and that there was a worldwide flood. I mean, that's laughable. Uh, Every culture in the history of the world has a flood story, but certainly couldn't have been a worldwide flood story. It must have just been the creek rose too high, you know, and <laughs> flooded. Um, but that doesn't seem to fit if you actually read their flood narratives from, I mean, we're talking from the people in South America to, you know, uh, the Sumerians and, and the, the Gilgamesh and the Babylonian flood things, um, but what about an ark? Is there evidence of an ark? Some people say it is. I talk to people who've actually, um, um, you know, n have good friends. Dr. Larry's very good friends have been there and uh, explored it. Um, but we don't have any hard evidence that they can give us video at the 10 o'clock news to tell us that Noah's ark is real. So if we never find in the, in the world, never affirms to us that Noah's Ark is real because there's no hard evidence, do we not believe the biblical narrative of the flood in Noah's Ark? No, because the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. People don't believe in God because there's no evidence that he exists, though it exists all around them. Um, so... That's something for us to keep in mind. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Scripture, because it does contain divinely inspired, accurate historical information, can even offer clues to guide archaeologists in their searches. As in science, Bible-based predictions can lead to historical archaeological discoveries. Mahoney explains in his book that 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 contains the nugget of information that places the Exodus at the right place on history's timeline and therefore the spade of the archaeologist at the right place and the time to see what Mosaic history has left for us to find. So this scripture in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 is another one that we haven't read yet that gives us the biblical record for why we should place the Exodus at 1491 B.C. and not 1290 B.C. 
First Kings chapter six, verse one. And it came to pass in the in the four hundred and eightieth year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he, that is Solomon, began to build the house of the Lord. So when did Solomon begin to build the temple? Well, the Bible says, the biblical record says it was 480 years after the children of Israel came out of Egypt. So from the Exodus plus 480 years is when Solomon began to build the temple in the fourth year of his reign. So the Exodus happened 480 years before Solomon began to build the temple, which would mean the Exodus occurred about 200 years before the time currently assigned by most scholars to Ramses the Great. So the scholars who say Ramses the Great was the pharaoh that oversaw the enslavement of the Egyptians, it cannot be according to the Bible. Because we know when Ramses the Great ruled, and and we've got the other records of when the temple was built, and it doesn't jive with the rule of Ramses. But it does fit perfectly if we move the timeline back and the date of the Exodus back to 1491, exactly where Usher puts it. But if you try to get the Israelites in Egypt only Egypt, within the borders of Egypt for 430 years, then you're forced to make the children of Israel enslaved by Ramses. The only problem is the Bible doesn't tell us that. In in fact, what the Bible communicates to us is we can't do that. So we've got to use the biblical timeline, which says you go from the building, the, the, the inception of the building of the temple, Minus 480 years, and you come to the Exodus. You go from the Exodus plus 480 years, and you get the, the, the beginning of the building of the temple by Solomon. And when you do that, you can't have Israelites enslaved by Ramses the Great because he wasn't Pharaoh 480 years prior to the building of the temple. according to the uh, timeline secularists and many scholars use. But if you back up 200 years, that's exactly what you're going to find. It coincides. So that would mean the Exodus occurred about 200 years before the time currently assigned by most scholars to Ramses the Great, commonly but erroneously viewed by many as the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Thus, we see from a historical document divinely inspired by God that those who have claimed that Ramses the Great was the Pharaoh of the Exodus have erred by digging for evidence in places dated two centuries too late. Why is there no evidence of the conquest of Canaan? Because because they're looking two centuries too late. It would be like us today, digging for evidence of the American Civil War that took place in 2061. Or we could say it like this. 
It would be like us digging today for the American Revolution, which took place in 1976. We can't find any evidence in, that in 1976 there was an American Revolution and a war with Britain. There's no evidence. It doesn't exist. Well, why not? Well, because you're digging and you're looking 200 years off. But if you back up 200 years to 1776, now you're going to find some evidence. Well, this, in a very simplistic way, but that's exactly what they're doing. They're looking for these things in the wrong place. So people who believe the Bible say, well, we know it's true because the Bible says so. And we're going to make these things fit in the secular timeline. When what we should be doing is saying, yes, we believe it because the Bible declares it. And I don't care whether there's any evidence or not. I'm still going to believe it. But, but guess what? If we actually follow the biblical timeline and we use the dating given to us in Scripture, we can go back 480 years to the time when we know where the Exodus started. And now there are actually historians and archaeologists who are digging in that time period and they have found the evidence and they're going, wow, what do we do with this? Uh, and that's really what Patterns of Evidence is about. It was the first film I think they did and it was about the Exodus and um, it, it's quite interesting. Um, of course, there are a lot of scholars who can't openly say these things because they won't get tenure from the universities if they go against the conventional wisdom. And so what they do, the same with climate change. You know, if a scientist today says climate change is, is not man caused by man, that, sci that scientist is not going to get his tenure. Uh, so he goes along with the uh, status quo and the company line. It's the same way with historians and archaeologists. But some of them are courageous and they're standing up and they're saying, we need to look at this again and we need to, re we need to rethink what we have taught and what we've promoted for many, many decades now because the evidence is beginning to show that we are wrong, we're off. Um, the Bible already knew that, but the, the world's finally catching up. Um, all right, there I gave you a link to the full article there, and um, I would love for us to actually watch that uh, movie, uh, if, if we can maybe do that one Wednesday, we'll do that. All right, any thoughts, any questions about about the timeline or the chronology. Do you understand what I'm basically presenting to you? I, you know, I don't know how many of you actually even follow this and are history buffs or, you know, um, a lot of people don't. A lot of people know there was an exodus, know that the children of Israel, they believe they spent 430 years in Egypt because that's what the Bible says. I believe that. I, 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 it's the way I, I just, I believe they spent 430 years in Egypt, and I've never actually studied the chronology. And it's this study on the timeline that's like, oh, wait a minute. Um, wow. I, I never connected that scripture in Galatians with, I mean, I've read that scripture hundreds of times. 
but it never like caused me to go go back and then begin to calculate and begin to think, wait a minute, that doesn't equal 430 years in Egypt. What, what do I do with that? And, and that's why I wanted to take some time here because there are critics of the Bible who use those things to derail people from their faith. Well, did you know that the children of Israel didn't even spend 430 years in Egypt? Or did you know there's no evidence that the children of Israel were ever in Egypt. There's no evidence of that whatsoever, that there was an exodus at all. Um, and a lot of Christians don't know what to do with that when they're confronted with that because most Christians probably don't know how to answer that other than, well, I believe it because it's in the Bible. And that's a fine and, and good enough answer, but it does, I think, behoove us to do a little bit of digging and, and have a reason for the hope that's in us. Uh, to be able to answer sometimes uh, those things that come up. All right, any thoughts about that? Any thoughts about any of this? Yes. Yes. Comma, freeze in the middle, uh, which they spent some time in Egypt. Uh, and then they say 430 years. They were sojourners for 430 years. Yes. They spent time in Egypt. Yeah. They say specifically exactly. 430 years in those, in those versions. And so then, now looking at this, like, oh, wow. So now it really does matter even what version of the Bible that you're reading because some have taken. Right, right. Yeah, and even, you know, I had never read it in the Septuagint, and even reading those excerpts from the Septuagint and the, the Talmud, um, the Jews, I mean, you know, you figure the Jews wrote the Septuagint 200 years before the birth of Christ, and, and the, the Talmuds have been being compiled for before that. Um, and, and this was the understanding that the Jews had. They counted it from Abraham's, the beginning of his sojourning. Um, I didn't realize that. I'm sorry, I'm your pastor, and I probably should have realized that, but I didn't realize that. So a lot of, a lot of things, you know, we take at face value, which, which can be fine, but, you know, do some digging and, and pay attention when you're reading. You know, I always tell people... Um, People ask me, not infrequently, what version of the Bible should I get? And I usually tell people, I always recommend uh, a word-for-word -word translation. So that's going to be the King James, New King James, NASB, e e ESV. Uh, I think those are the four word-for-word -word translations that are commonly... Uh, but, but in addition to that, don't just have one translation you read. That's a, what DJ just brought up is a really good reason why we should have multiple translations of the Bible. Um, and they do. I know now, you know, so much electronically, you can, you can have 
all kinds of translations on your phone or on your computer. Um, they even make, you know, if you still like to hold a book, they make parallel versions. You know, I've got a parallel Bible at home that's got King James, Amplified, NIV, uh, in, you know, like four or five different verses. Uh, there's one Bible that's got like 27 different translations side by side. Um, and, and so the point is, you know, especially when, when you come up upon those topics or those verses, um, look at multiple translations. Your English Bible is reliable. Uh, and so you don't ever have to worry about whether your English Bible is steering you wrong. But there are, you know, men are fallible. So the NIV is a thought-for-thought thought translation of the Bible. And um, so you're getting someone's commentary about what they think that verse means. And it doesn't mean it's wrong or maybe, maybe there's another way of looking at that verse. And so it's always good to have a word-for-word -word translation um, to work from and then others to help you. Uh, what else? Any other thoughts? Well, on the later timeline, it would be a pharaoh named Thutmose, the first. Yeah, it's down, see the world history? Yeah. So those timelines are parallel, so if you just follow those lines up, you'll see that Thutmose, the first, ruled until about, you know, 1430, and then Amenhotep, the fourth, came into power. Um, the other thing there that's interesting, so do you see this uh, down here, the Hittite advance on this timeline? And do you see somewhere around 13, it looks like 1360 or so, the Egyptian-Hittite treaty. Um, the Hittites are a, a people group that's well known to historians, but, but a lot of, the Bible doesn't say a lot about the Hittites. It, it mentions, who was one, I can't, there was one guy, so-and-so the Hittite. Huh? Uriah the Hittite, yeah. Uriah, one, one of David's mighty men. Uh, Uriah was a Hittite. Well, the Hittite people um, were a great empire. Now, they're not, they weren't a world-dominating empire like the Egyptians were. But you see here this Egyptian-Hittite treaty. Um, now, what's interesting uh, is uh, the Egyptians were eventually defeated by the Hittites, overrun by the Hittites. Uh, or we could say it like this, there was a period of Egyptian history where there was a sudden decline in Egypt. And what caused that decline? Well, historians say, well, it was the Hittites. And, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't dispute that it was the Hittites. But what happened in Egypt 
that weakened Egypt to the point that the Hittites were able to come in and the Egyptians in a weakened state had to enter into a treaty with them. Well, if you look at this timeline, it just so happens the Hittite advance, when does the Hittite advance begin to take place? Just about the time of the Exodus. What happened at the Exodus? Well, what happened to, that led to the Exodus? I mean, think about what happened in Egypt with the plagues. Total destruction of that country. Culminating with the death of the firstborn. And then to top it off, Pharaoh in his rage follows with his entire army. And then they are destroyed by God in the Red Sea. Now you have a country, a nation that, that dominated the world that now has been basically destroyed, doesn't have an army to speak of any longer, and probably not a will, not much of a will to, to fight. And if you look here on this timeline of history, the Hittite advance begins just about exactly the time of the Exodus. Now, we just in our, we're going to advance uh, I'll tell you a story from history that's, that's fast-forwarding quite a bit. If we fast-forward from this time, let's just say from... Um, um, if we fast-forward another 700, 800 years to the, to the Assyrian Empire... So the Assyrian Empire, who knows what the capital of the Assyrian Empire was? Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And there's a book in the Bible, the book of Jonah, where God sends his prophet to Nineveh, to the Assyrian people, to preach repentance. And you know the story of Jonah. Well, uh, Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire was a great powerful empire. And it was the Assyrians in about 722 BC that came and carried away the northern kingdom of Israel and carried them away captive. Do you know where the Assyrian army carried the king of Israel to? What city that he was carried to? Not to Nineveh. If you read in the Bible, it says that uh, that I can't remember the, the king, um, sorry. That king was carried off to Babylon. Hosea, I believe. He was carried off to Babylon. Well, Babylon is the, the capital of the Babylonian Empire, but there wasn't a Babylonian Empire at that time. In 722, Assyria ruled Asia, and, and Nineveh was their capital city. We just did the uh, lesson on the destruction of Nineveh. It is said that more than a million people lived in the city of Nineveh. So we're talking, uh, you know, in, in, the eighth, in, the, in the late 8th century. Um, more than a million people lived in Nineveh. The city stretched over 30 miles. This is the city. It would have taken, 
It would have taken Jonah days to walk through and walk across that city proclaiming repentance. The city stretched about 30 miles, and the city had a wall around it that was 100 feet tall, and it was wide enough for three chariots to ride side by side. And it had, I believe, two or three water moats. It was an impenetrable, impenetrable, how do you say that word? In what? Impenetrable. You couldn't penetrate that city. You couldn't penetrate that city. And, um, and everybody knew that. I mean, it's why, so the powers, the, the nations of Mesopotamia, which included the Babylonians, the Scythians, the Medes, the Persians, they were all there. They didn't, just, they didn't just all show up one day and become world empires. All those people lived there in Mesopotamia. But it was the Assyrians who were the power. And Nineveh was their center of power. And I can't remember the year. It was somewhere around, does anybody know the year? I think it was like around 620. It was 626, actually. It was 20 years before the conquest of Judah. In 626 B.C., just 100 years after Assyria defeated Israel and carried them away captive. Remember, we talked about this. This is where Samaritans came from. The Assyrians carry away all the Jews, and then they send in their people to populate the city and to take over the farms and to live in their houses. And then those Assyrians that lived there mingled, co-married with the Jews that were there and became the race we know as Samaritans. Well, that all started in 722 when the Assyrians invaded. Well, 100 years later, almost 100 years later, in 626, and this was prophesied by the prophet of God long before it happened. In 626, there was a great flooding of the Tigris River. And the Tigris River flooded so severely that it washed out, it undermined sections of the great wall around Nineveh. And the wall around Nineveh collapsed and was washed out. And guess what all of those people in living in Mesopotamia who could never defeat Nineveh did? As soon as they found out the wall was washed out, the Babylonians show up with the Scythians and the Persians and the Medes and led by Nebopolassar, the Babylonian general, the father of, guess who? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar brings his Babylonian army and defeats the Assyrians, captures Nineveh and defeats them as cruelly as the Ninevites had defeated all their other foes. And then the Babylonians make Nebuchadnezzar their king. And when he dies, his son, Nebuchadnezzar, becomes king. And then in 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar goes to Judah and to Jerusalem and conquers it. And so when that wall was undermined, the enemies were waiting for their opportunity. And that's how Assyria was defeated. Now, if we look at this timeline and we believe the Bible, it's not accidental that the Hittite advance of Egypt 
occurred at the very moment of Egypt's greatest weakness after God had destroyed their nation and destroyed their army. And according to the biblical timeline, the Hittite advance would have coincided with, in other words, that very rapid decline in Egyptian history and Egyptian culture coincided with the Exodus. And there is actually historical and archaeological evidence that supports that. But modern scholars don't place the Exodus 200 years later or earlier. They place it 200 years later. And so they can't see the connection there. No, there's no connection there. But if you just follow with what the Bible says, the connection is there. Um, all right, any thoughts there? Exactly, that's right. Everything, that's right. Yeah. Gave it, yeah. And, and, and so in Usher's timeline, he he it's quite it's quite detailed. He in that year after the Exodus, I, I you know, you don't think about it, you read this and you think, oh, they did all these things over periods of time. No. I mean they they built the tabernacle. All of the, all of the curtains, everything, the gold, that was all built within the first year. And you think, how did they do that? But then you realize what they carried out of Egypt. I mean, the material. They didn't have to weave their own cloth. I mean, they carried all of that out. And if God, if God was orchestrating that, and God knew he was going to build a tabernacle. God made sure that they carried with them into the wilderness everything they needed to build a tabernacle. And you got, you got over a million people there who are now ready. What else do they have to do? I mean, God's protecting them. God's sustaining them. And they are going to work building these things that God is commanding them to build. You, you know, you don't, you don't think about those things oftentimes as you're just reading the Bible. Um, but when you start thinking about, well, when did this actually happen? Wow, that was quick. Um, any other thoughts? Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, so Mosul. Mm -hmm. But they did repent and be, and believe in God. That was before their destruction. So Jonah goes to them and they do repent. And for decades, the Ninevites, the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, did they, they stopped their hostile ways. But eventually, um, I can't remember... Um, I can't remember the succession of kings, but um, the one mentioned in the scripture, um, gosh, what's his name? The one that comes to Hezekiah and they, they're there outside the gate, the walls of Jerusalem and said, we're going to just go ahead and surrender. We've taken every city and every nation. 
And you remember Hezekiah, the, 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 the guy there is saying, talk to us in, uh, in Assyrian. Don't talk to us in Hebrew. We don't want our people to hear. And then the guy starts talking to them in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, he tells them, you're going to eat your own dung and drink your own urine. And don't listen to what your king Hezekiah has to say. Um, and that's when God sends his death angel. Well, it was way before that that Jonah goes and they repent. But at some point in time, they revert to their wicked ways, and the judgment God brings upon them is their total destruction at the hands of the Babylonians in 626. And then the Babylonians become the power in Mesopotamia. That's right. Yes, ma'am. Great question. What else? Any other questions? I mean, and God used the Assyrians. So, I mean, God sent the Assyrians to conquer Israel, the northern kingdom. The Assyrians were the judgment of God upon Israel for her sin. The Babylonians were the judgment of God, sent by God, for the judgment of Judah for her sins. And so God used these pagan nations. He raised them up and he destroyed them. And... and, God is still working. Same with Egypt. He raised them up and he brought them down. And and Egypt never recovered from the exodus and the plagues and the destruction that God wrought upon her. She remained a nation, but she never recovered and she never was as powerful like, like she was in those days. Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not God looking at the situation and determining it. This is from yeah. eternity already determined, and God is playing it out. Right. Uh, that was uh, brought out, and I don't remember in our readings in Isaiah that that was brought out. Um, oh, well, I wish I had it. Uh, I wish I could just quote it to you. But God, in, in, through the prophet Isaiah, affirms that. God, he's talking through Isaiah, he's prophesying through Isaiah to his people, saying how, you know, I, I created you, I birthed you before there was anything. You know, I determined these things before there was a world. I mean, God very clearly reveals himself as the God who is sovereign over history, sovereign over the creation. Yeah, so God is never reacting. God is never coming behind and fixing problems that man creates. God is the one who has determined the rise and fall of empires before those empires ever existed. Any other thoughts? Any other questions? I mean, we don't like to think of that uh, because it, it, uh, it reminds us that Ultimately, we're not the ones calling the shots here. 
Doesn't mean we don't have personal responsibility. We do. Doesn't mean we don't make choices. We do. But it does mean that we ultimately are not the ones that are in control of everything as much as we would like to be. All right, any other thoughts, questions, comments? Do y'all want to try to watch? Um, I don't know how we would. It, it, it is a fascinating. It, I think it's about an hour and a half. Um, do we, where's that pop-up screen that we used to have? We might be able to. Do you think it would show on the wall? We could. Um, do y'all, would y'all like to try to watch that next Wednesday? Yeah. Could we do that? Okay. Yeah, that's another really good one. Yeah. We've actually shown that here um, several years ago, but it would be a good one to show again. It absolutely would. Genesis is history. It's a fantastic film. Um, okay, so next Wednesday, we'll, we'll uh, try to make that happen. And um, it should not be a reason why we can't. Um, 